Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Daniel Walsh, a.k.a. Sergeant Scholar. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Uh, Sure. So one thing that uh, audience members might uh, find fascinating is that I am a combat veteran. I served in the United States Marine Corps as an infantryman from uh, 2000, 2006. And, uh, you know, no brainer, I saw uh, action in Iraq during a initial push in 2003. Uh, Second thing, I live in the Las Vegas area. A lot of people don't really think of that as a place where people live. Uh, This is where I grew up since, oh, just before uh, primary school. (laughs) So I've been here since I was about four. I've only been to other places because of military service, in fact. Third thing is I was never into sports until very recently when Las Vegas got a hockey team. <laughs> yeah, so I'm now into hockey. That's actually, the, I don't think the audience members will see that, right? <laughs> when you say hockey, do you mean uh, regular field hockey, hockey or ice hockey? Ice hockey. Yes. Ice, ice hockey, hockey in yes. Las Vegas. Yes. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Las Vegas Golden Knights are actually one of the uh, one of the best teams in the NHL, the National Hockey League. And right now they're in the, um, uh, to borrow a moniker from uh, basketball, they're in the final four right now going to the Stanley Cup. So for the championship. So we'll see how they do. <laughs> That's really great. Thanks very much for that, Daniel. Uh, where did you study then, and what are your qualifications? Yes, so I uh, studied uh, locally here. I got uh, two undergraduate degrees, one in environmental and resource science, and the other in biology. Uh, originally, when I entered graduate school, I entered as a, uh, a master's student in the microbiology track, uh, studying astrobiology, so how we look for microbes on, on Mars and stuff like that. Uh, two years into that program, uh, my wife was pregnant with uh, our other child, and it was just not working out. I was living in lab, you know, hardly ever home. And at that time, I was well into science communication at that point, and I figured, well, what about maybe changing, uh, shifting gears here? So I went over to my school's communication department, said, this is what I've been doing. And they said, that sounds great. How about you go ahead and uh, put an application? So the next semester, I started as a communication student. (laughs) So I went from science to the humanities to study science communication. And very just a few weeks ago, uh, wrapped everything up and passed my defense and looking forward to getting on the next phase of life. So when I do, uh, so I studied mostly the science communication behind climate change. Uh, On social media, I have dabbled into many other facets, including vaccines, energy, environmental issues uh, other than uh, climate change, so pollution, uh, as well as uh, critical thinking. So uh, maybe some social psychology, like why do people believe these uh, groundless ideas, right? So these are also kind of tying that communication aspect too. 
How did you become interested in science as a career? Ah, oh, yeah, there's uh, there's no direct <laughs> there's no direct answer to that. So uh, back when I was in, so I'm almost forty now. So when I say I was in back in high school, we're talking about oh mid nineties. Uh, I watched uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos for the first time, and I loved science at that at that point. And I just saw a whole other side of science that I fell in love with. Uh, I kind of fell out of it for quite a while uh, because I didn't think college was in my, my future due to monetary reasons. But when after uh, military service, I went, entered college and I took an environmental science class and things just kind of clicked again. And so I think this is, this is something that I want to do. And you know, things just led to another thing, right? It's, I want to do this, I want to do that. And uh, what started off as like environmental science turned into like, let's double major with biology and maybe do astrobiology. And then this whole time I was also doing like critical thinking and communi science communication on social media. And so now here I am, instead of doing science, talking about the science to people, like why this matters, how they know what they know, things of that nature. That sounds like a, a very straightforward progression, apart from the point where you, you decided to take a swerve into, uh, into science communication, which seems to suit you very well. What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in science or science communication? Hi. Uh, when you're an undergraduate, get as much lab time as you can. <laughs> <laughs> I really would. That that's something that um I heard but didn't take to heart too much. I did volunteer work here and there when I could, but honestly, like that that wasn't enough. I should have really <laughs> invested into lab work so that way I had a better footing entering grad school. Because when in grad school, at least here in the states, it's like, hey, yes, you did really good in uh, on the shore in undergrad that they just throw you in the deep end all of a sudden you're like whoa wait a minute <laughs> coding what's this what do you mean coding wait a minute um so uh yeah if you want to do uh research scientific research get as much lab time as possible even if you're thinking about doing science communication having an understanding of what happens in a lab will be very helpful when trying to explain what's happening to people so we talked about how you got into science communication as you were progressing through your postgrad studies and, and found this a natural fit to, to what you were doing. You're on social media now, and how has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas? Oh, yes. Social media is such a game changer in everything, right? Uh, so one thing that uh, I've noticed with social media is that when people are reading these posts, these comments, this, this text, they're going to put in whatever tone they're feeling at the moment into that, into that message. So if they just got out of an argument from one post and then come on over, it's very easy for them to just read what you're writing. So it, the one thing that was affected me is like I have to take a step back sometimes and maybe put a post on pause for a day 
sometimes just be like, am I really conveying what I want to convey? Because it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Uh, so many people are, they have this sense of bravado, right? So they, there's this anonymity, there's this distance between people. They're not going to run into me in real life. I could just be a jackass. And at the same time, it's so easy to misinterpret someone as a jackass, <laughs> you know, just trying to troll you or just stir the pot. So really what it comes down to is have to try and find some sort of way to convey to a massive audience where the message is clear. Uh, some And sometimes that means explaining more on some things, which can annoy some people at the same time. But like, if you don't do that, it just increases the chances for misinterpretation. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that running my own Facebook page. I've got two main rules of, of engagement. First is, is don't feed the trolls. And some people say, oh, you know, at some point you do need to engage them. No, you don't. No, you can just completely block them. If people are arguing in bad faith or simply there to spam your, your page or simply there to cause trouble, you don't owe them any time or any energy and they are consuming resources that are used much more effectively elsewhere. So ignore them if they're just short term and if they persist, ban them. I've got no problems banning oh, people. Yes. It's just not worth it. It's it's not your responsibility to be policing their bad behavior all the time, all the time. That's just a complete waste of time eventually. So yeah, don't, oh, yes. don't feed the trolls is a, is a key thing, but also, with people who aren't trolls but still want to argue but don't but are resistant to address your argument or or um you know, aren't willing to present sufficient evidence for for their position but they don't really fall into trolling behavior because they are genuine they're just very misguided be willing to to know when enough is enough and be willing to disengage there is no shame in walking away from an argument that has ceased to serve any productive purpose. And I've made that very clear to people on, on my page. If I stop replying, you can assume it means you've won. That's fine. <laughs> what, it, what it typically means is I've decided there's no point wasting energy on this. We've said all we're going to say, we're either talking in circles now or we're just repeating ourselves or, or there's nothing more to be gained from this discussion and I'm walking away. And if you want to jump up and down and keep making insulting posts, that's fine. I'm, I'm there's no skin off my nose. I'm going to walk away and, and you're not going to be able to tempt me back by insulting me, whatever. That's that doesn't affect me. I don't care. You know, Oh yes. Your when opinion engaging... doesn't, doesn't care that it doesn't, isn't that important to me. <laughs> I'm quite happy to walk away and disengage and I'm, I don't have any fear of losing face or, or, you know, losing pride because that's not what it's about. The facts are there. I've right. laid them out and that's all there is to it. And if you want to keep on jumping up and down, trying to tempt me back into a debate, fine, spend your energy on that. Mm. But mm -hmm. I won't play it. I've moved oh, on. Yeah. It's not oh, yes. Com comments are a very different animal. Uh, sometimes my uh, my fans will reach out and ask me advice. I'm like, how do I uh, respond to these comments? And uh I, I kind of give them a spiel like, like what you said as well. Uh, I build on that a little bit, though. I like to remind them about a, a social judgment theory. So this is a, um, a social uh, psychology and communication theory. So it's kind of like if 
So people have their, their anchor point. Uh, and when you're given a spectrum of like true or false or like a variety of positions someone can take on an issue, they have their preferred anchor point and they have a lateral of exception, then they have a lateral of non-committance and then a lateral of rejection. So if you try and jump in with a claim that's in their lateral of rejection, they're not going to accept it. They're just not going to. Uh, but what this uh, theory does show that if you engage with some position that they're not going to say no to right off the bat, you have a chance to shift their anchor point. So what's interesting about this theory is that it kind of confirms something in common sense, right? Hardly anybody does a 180 turn on some they're very invested in, right? So the more you invest your ego, the more you invest your identity, and the more you're committed to that, like, this is my position and it is correct, the less likely you are to completely change your mind, right? It's, it's just not happening. The best you can hope for is incremental shifts over time. So I like to remind people of that because it helps them alleviate the, the pressure, right? Like I have to flip this person all the way in this one argument, like, no, no, no. If you get them to think about their position over like the next day or two, and it results in a shift, you won. <laughs> that is exactly how this operates. It's not what we want, <laughs> right? But that's how it works. Another thing I like to advise people is that that person is not your only audience member. It's the other people, especially on social media, that are reading the interaction. So that person may not uh, change their mind, but somebody reading that who uh, empathizes with that position might uh, start shifting their position as well. Yeah, that's a really excellent point, especially the part about being aware of your wider audience. Not everyone who is um, posting is um, is engaged. Some people some people are engaged simply by by reading, and you've got to be aware that your audience extends beyond the person you're speaking to replying to right now mm -hmm. it's all the other people who are quietly just browsing or lurking waiting to see how this pans out and you have no idea how much they could be influenced by the tone the style or the language that you're using or the complexity of the arguments or the logical progression anything like that could be the tipping point to them that provides incremental change that can bring them to a new point of view and i really like the the point you made about not having to change them completely straight away you know all, all at once that's uh, another excellent point to mention because it's you've got to manage your own expectations as well when you're running a page like this you've got to manage your audience's expectations but you've got to manage your own expectations because otherwise you just get too exhausted and too discouraged too quickly you have to be realistic oh, yes. about what you can achieve realistic about how much of that you will actually see reflected in your audience and realistic about the amount of energy that you can afford to put into something like this because it can be very demanding and quite exhausting it, it, and also for the other person as well, like even if you logically dismantle their argument by the end, if this is something that went on for hours, they're not going to remember why they lost. They're not. They're just going to remember this is super exhausting and not have any good takeaways from that. Yeah, ultimately, you've got to be saying to yourself, 
what's the one point I want them to take? What, even if they take nothing away, what is one point I would like to leave them with that I know that they will take away from this and at least think about? And that's as good a win as any. That's, you know, that at least is, is something. And that's also a, a viable, a manageable and an achievable goal. And it also helps to keep you on track, on task, remind you of what the the discussion is about or the argument, but about what the main issue is. And I, I think that's just so important. Yes, yes. And another uh, thing to think about too is something called flashpoint warrants. So uh, are you familiar with the uh, the Toulon model of argumentation at all? So even if you were, I guess there, there'd be uh, audience members who weren't. So uh, Toulon, uh, who's a communication scholar uh, decades ago, came up with this uh, fairly simplistic but very useful way to look at argument. So it's in every argument, uh, its components either implicitly stated or overtly stated are broken down into different parts. So one part is your, your data. The next part uh, is your warrant. So how your data pieces connect together to get to a conclusion. So the conclusion in this case would be called a claim. Then you have something called a qualifier, which would be something like, this is mostly true with exceptions for this scenario, that scenario. And the last part will be backing, which is this more philosophical sort of uh, entity, right? Like you're getting this argument from the field of science. So we use abductive reasoning, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, getting back to flashpoint warrants, it gets its name from the Tuman model warrant. So kind of like the unspoken reasoning, how the data connects together. So let's say I was talking up to uh, people who do not quite believe in uh, human-caused climate change. So if I was to start talking about like, well, we know that this climate is changing 12 to 45 times faster compared to uh, the geological record on like 800 millennia time scale, and I could just launch in from that point forward, it doesn't matter because from their perspective, they don't understand the warrant. So the why scientists know the climate has changed so slowly before, like that whole reasoning is lost. So without having to explain that, there's no point in going forward because everything's gonna go in one ear at the other. So identifying those uh, non-spoken warrants, so like why, someone may misunderstand this. You know, connecting these two data points together would really help audience members. Over the past couple of decades, we've seen a resurgence in conspiracy theories and anti-science sentiment. And there's been a, a lot of pushback, particularly against experts leading uh, one commentator and i can't remember who it was to coin the phrase the death of expertise he said we're living yes. in, in the era of the death of expertise where there is huge skepticism of expertise and huge pushback against science communication and this is massively damaging um, on a number of levels, not only to the credibility of science, but also it has very serious economic and social uh, ramifications, considering what we are trying to achieve through science for society and, and humanity as a whole. What do you think is driving this, this resurgence in anti-science thinking? Oh, yes. 
I don't think we're going to have any single million dollar answer. I think this is a, a multifaceted uh, social experience that we're observing. Uh, I think it's also helpful to notice that this is something that we saw even in uh, Sagan's era. So if we read uh, uh, Carl Sagan's Demon Hunter World, Science's Candle in the Dark, he was complaining of, of this sort of thing uh, that he in the early 90s. So now moving forward as a more broad sweeping, faster, we can attribute part of this, it seems, to just people having larger platforms to spread ideas. Uh, another another uh, thing that coincides with this is not just the rise of uh, anti-science rhetoric, but uh, populist rhetoric, right? So this idea that like, well, my idea is just as valid, even though we're talking about fact claims, right? We take this idea that really applies to value claims and policy claims, right? Like my idea is what it is and I can argue it right to this technical expertise fact realm. Like that doesn't work. <laughs> it just does not work like that. Yes, um, at, a, at another uh, level though, this also has to do with um, a mistrust of authority, right? Because we, we've seen, you know, corporations, governments not being the ideal ethical models, shall we say? <laughs> uh, and this is this authority is transferred over to expertise, which is a different kind of authority, right? So people just are automatically look at experts, be it in science or economics or whatever, and just view them as a power figure that equates to distrust. And there's, oh, there's so much to this, <laughs> so much to this. Another issue is that um, uh, just human psychology, right? Uh, we're social, we're social beings, and we don't do very well analyzing facts and statistics and numbers. We deal better with stories and what our social tribe is doing, right? We, we do better, uh, I shouldn't say do better, but we, we respond better to those sorts of stimuli than just cold statistics. So there's this whole, oh yeah, this, this whole thing is just a tangled mess. It's a, a huge mess. I think you've made some really good observations there, and I definitely agree with all of them. And I've I've seen those reflected in uh, in commentaries on this issue and and uh, books and and articles that I've I've read. Um, one big problem that is central to this, and, and again, it's something that that multiple commentators have observed, is that people prefer simple answers. Particularly, they prefer simple mm. answers to complex questions because complex answers require a lot more effort to get your head around and they require you to know more things and they might not fit so neatly into your worldview and they might not reinforce your pre-existing ideas or assumptions about the world. So it is much easier to latch on to simple answers which provide a shortcut to the kinds of conclusions that you prefer because they present less resistance to your worldview. And that, of course, is how these issues become so rapidly politicized. Do you think that's a valid assessment? Yes, that is definitely a, 
that is definitely playing a, a role in this. And when you dovetailing into the the politicization of so many issues that shouldn't even be, we kind of dabble into uh, social identity theory, which partially explains this as well. So, which is kind of a, a, a social psychology slash communication theory that's effectively a, a beefed up version of in-group, out-group bias and confirmation bias, right? So like my group says this, my, I, that group is saying that I'm going to hyper accentuate and conform to this group's <laughs> standards just to shut the other person down that, because they're, they're not us. So no, we, their view needs to be quieted. Oh yeah, yeah, that's definitely part of it. That, oh, so much, so much there. Generally speaking, we like to think that when presented with irrefutable facts, people will change their point of view and allow those facts to mm. reshape their knowledge of the world and their and their opinions and help them to come to you know accurate conclusions. But somehow people have found a way to become resistant to facts and and filter them out or in, in some other way buffer themselves against the facts and those and the conclusions that those facts inevitably lead towards while still holding their their views. Uh, so while still holding their views, they acknowledge the existence of, of those facts and yet they don't allow those those facts to overturn what they currently believe. And they maintain a kind of ongoing friction that they somehow rationalize. And this situation is commonly known as uh, cognitive dissonance. Can you explain to the audience precisely what cognitive dissonance is and, and how it functions? Oh, yeah. So cognitive dissonance theory, there's, there's a whole lot to that. Uh, it actually has uh, different schools of thought. <laughs> so we, we, could, we could spend an entire podcast series on cognitive dissonance theory. Uh, but I think the part that relates mostly to uh, our conversation is that when you are presented with information that contradicts uh, what you understand to be true, uh, you are left with a few different ways to resolve that discomfort, right? Because it's it's not comfortable when you're, you're given this conflicting information. And the one option is like you could accept the new information and change your behavior, change your perspective. Another option is you could try and find some way to see if there's some way to make both of them match in some sort of weird story, right? We, we see uh, some, uh, some special creationists do this, right? Like, yes, evolution is true because uh, God is guiding, right? So that's a perfect example of someone who tries to make both pieces of information that they accept. Uh, another option is to just reject it. Just re reject the contradicting information and dig your heels into the ground and just resist. And uh, of course, cognitive dissonance is not the only uh, cognitive bias uh, that we have. Uh, there's a whole slew of others, right? Hundreds <laughs> that we can get into. And I think it's important to realize that it's not just a handful of people who do this. We are all susceptible to this, no matter how much we subscribe to critical thinking, metacognition, skepticism, right? Even uh, uh, James Randi, right? The, 
he was a uh, he was a climate change skeptic, if you will, to to misuse the word, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, he's he's a perfect example of someone who uses critical thinking and just just did not uh, subscribe to the evidence for whatever reason it was. So this is something that we all have to keep ourselves in check and, and have to listen to people when they say like, hey, there's a possibility you're wrong and here's why. Yeah, that's um, that's a really great explanation. So thank you for that. I, I think the way I, I like to put it is that we have this almost infinite capacity to rationalize the world to make sense of it and that, that's necessary because yes. we we often come up against ideas that are too big for us to comprehend or, or concepts that mm. are difficult mm -hmm. to understand yet we must at least have some kind of faith in because those are concepts essential to the way our, our world operates and and to, to the way we make sense of it so for example the average person would say look i don't understand exactly how computers work. I don't understand how they retain all the information and they spit it out in this ordered way. But I, I understand that some technology behind it is, is what makes it work. And these mm -hmm. people who, who are specialized in this have designed this technology to work in this particular way. And I trust that that's how it works. And that, that's cool. That's good enough for me. And, and that's a form of compartmentalizing. You know, you, I don't have to think too much about this. I just trust that it all works and I'm, and I'm cool with that. Other people know how it works and that's enough. So it's enough for me to know that other people understand this and I can see for myself that it works. But when it's information that conflicts with your worldview, you have to do something different. You sort of have to compartmentalize it in a different way. You have to say, I hear that argument and I don't agree with it. I personally don't know how it is wrong. I can't refute it. All I can do is put it into a little box that says interesting, but somehow wrong, even though I can't explain why. And then I just have to have faith that it's wrong. And, and again, in, in, in the case of say, you know, some forms of religious belief, such as special creation or uh, science denial, this, this kind of thing, such as, you know, climate uh climate change denial this is what people do i don't quite understand how it's wrong i can't explain how it could be wrong but it conflicts with these very strongly held views i have so therefore it must be wrong even though i can't explain or prove how that is and so that's what we do and it's basically the too hard basket we've got this too hard basket and then when anything comes along that's that's too difficult we just compartmentalize it chuck it in this box and then chuck mm -hmm. it in the too hard basket and that's it we've rationalized it we haven't actually solved the problem though, because it's, so it's not a full rationalization. We're actually employing dangerously borderline irrational methods for dealing with a problem that creates cognitive dissonance. So yes. we just have to pretend that the problem doesn't really exist or, or that there isn't a problem. And we just sort of paper over the cracks and, and that's what we do. Uh, and, and as you say, most of us do this quite unconsciously in, in various little little ways in things of no importance but problems arise when it comes to major issues facing wider society wider culture the existential crisis facing our planet etc that's when it becomes a real problem because that's when we're dealing with you know scientific certitudes and inevitabilities that are going to have very serious ramifications for the next few generations. So one 
popular movement that has seen a uh, resurgence particularly on online almost exclusively online actually is the flat earth community now it's yes. a real mix bag because there's clearly some people who are in it just for the lulls and they're trolling and you know sure that's fine no problem in, enjoy your trolling everyone does it it's all good no drama then there are people who are clearly just in it for the grift and there's plenty of grifting to be made from it and it, it's very uncertain exactly how committed they are to the belief whether they're committed to the belief or they're committed to the bit Nine times out of 10, I would rather say they're committed to the bit because I like to think that someone smart enough to make good money off it isn't dumb enough to actually believe it. <laughs> and, and I think don't get high in your own supply also applies here. Too. I, I was just thinking that same, uh, that same analogy. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but then there do seem to be a, a smaller percentage, and these are the most hardcore ones, smaller percentage of people who genuinely believe it, who, who genuinely try to present alternative cosmological models and say, well, no, this is how seasons could work on a flat earth, or this is how we explain the apparent distance between the sun and the moon and the earth and how they're all relative to each other. And these people also are fond of saying, well, for most of human history, everyone believed that the earth was flat because that's what all the evidence around us showed. But how accurate is this claim? When did humans discover our, our planet is round or at the very least elliptical? And how could they prove this? Uh, yeah, so I actually uh, wrote a, uh, a mini series about flat earthers and what we can learn from them actually on a, my blog page. Because one thing that I love about flat earthers is that for most people, they can see these cognitive biases and these logical flaws in their arguments. And those are the same biases and logical flaws used in pretty much every other pseudoscientific argument. It's just more obvious. So, so I, I just wanted to say that I find a utility with flat earthers as a communication tool because you could explain like, this is how this bias and this is how this cognitive flaw, this is how this logical argument, this, this sorry, logical fallacy can mislead you. And you can see it in this argument. You can see it's right there because it's not conflicting with a pre-established belief of yours. So uh, I just wanted to just, just say that like, I, <laughs> I find them useful. <laughs> And I do, I really do. Uh, but going back to your, your question, like when did, uh, at least uh, when we found the earth was a spherical shape, uh, I believe that was done, uh, or at least we have earliest records of this being mathematically deduced by Eratosthenes, I wanna say circa 260 BCE-ish, maybe two, somewhere in the 250s, 260-ish era. And he was uh, he the was guy able, with the stick, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yes. That, with that, stick? Right, right. Yeah, over in uh, Alexandria. Yeah. 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 So I've read a bit about what he did with, with yes. the stick. I've never yeah. quite understood entirely how the stick proved that the earth is round. So could you talk our audience through the whole stick experiment, sure, so, what it involved, and how it proved his okay, claim? So uh, he was in uh, the city of Alexandria. Uh, in Egypt at the time. And uh, during the longest day of the year, he read a report that in a city uh, 
oh, about 200 miles, I think, south. On the longest day of the year, you can see straight down a well, right? And he thought, that's very interesting. And uh, he noticed that on the same day of the year that he, he could not see down to the bottom of the well and that sticks cast a shadow, whereas in that city, sticks do not cast a shadow at noon. And after sitting down, he's a well-read person. Uh, he was one of the head librarians at the city of Alexandria, at the, the Library of Alexandria, very well-read person. And he figured, well, well, hell, the only way that uh, this could happen is if uh, the Earth is spherical shape. Now, of course, Eratosthenes was not the first person to think the Earth was spherical. Uh, I believe uh, Aristotle mused with this idea as well. Talk about how, how different stars were observable at different points of the Earth. Uh, you could see, you could only see the the, the sails of ships and the last, you know, for so far. And then the last thing you see is their mast, right? But these weren't arguments that were taking anything more than like just philosophical what ifs, right? Until Eratosthenes, uh, he decided to mathematically figure it out. So he hired someone uh, to pace the distance and using geometry, he figured out the circumference of the earth. Basically like, okay, so it's this far, if the angle is this different, you can calculate. And he was really close. <laughs> he was only a few percent, like it was like seven or 10% off, something like that. Just using six shadows and some person pacing the distance. So that, it was that is quite a clever. phenomenal degree of accuracy using such rudimentary tools. It, uh, it is. And, but we have to remember that um, uh, he didn't do this alone either. So technically, there is the possibility of a small sun, you know, just, just overhead, right? Just not too far away. He had to rely on uh, another astronomer, uh, Aristarchus, who was able to determine that the sun was pretty large and far away. <laughs> and he was able to do this uh, using uh, solar eclipses and clever use of trigonometry. The only problem is that like, the tools that uh, Aristarchus had were very rudimentary. He was off by a lot. <laughs> but he was able to do something like, yeah, the sun is even if by that standard, the sun was very, very far away. So that mathematically ruled out the close sun hypothesis. So that left only spherical shaped for Eratosthenes. Uh, that is a, a really great and and straightforward explanation of that. Thank you so much. I don't think I've heard it explained quite so um, elegantly as that before. So thank you so much for that. Well, if that passes as elegant, so we're all in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, that that's that's absolutely great. Yeah. So if then, as far back as you know, the pre-Christian era, it was demonstrable that yes. the Earth is round. How can flat earthers say, well, everyone believed that it was flat everyone believed that the earth was flat because that's all we could ever see and prove by observation. It's a, it's just a clever use of the argument from tradition, right? So people have always believed this so that it must be true, right? It's uh, the, the argument from tradition is a, uh, is, is a logical fallacy where you misplace uh, something uh, like just arguments of menial substance, right? Like, should we have Christmas dinner? Well, we've always done it. You know, it's a nice 
ritual to do, get family together, it keeps everybody connected, right? That's an okay use of argument from tradition, right? But when we're talking about questions of fact, <laughs> this is this is a fallacy at that point. Like, no, that no, this is this is not how we do things. And we can uh, we can allow some some leeway to them on one point. It, it was certainly a widespread idea that the Earth was flat. It was baked into ancient cosmological models, for example, particularly in the ancient Near East, uh, where you had a very sort of specific system whereby you've you've got the earth then you've got regions under the earth extending down to some unknown depth and then above you you've got the firmament which is a literal solid dome and and the sun moon and stars move about on this dome in some way and occasionally gates and mm. doors open in the dome to allow waters <laughs> above the firmament to come down and slosh on top of the earth and that kind of thing. So we, we find those throughout the, the ancient Near East through uh, Jewish literature, you know, um, Chaldean literature, uh, stretching back, you know, Babylonians, Hittites, Egyptians, all of them shared that, that same basic model. But of course, this is well before the Greek classical era and well before the experiment that you were talking about. Um, and even after, of course, this experiment demonstrated that the earth was round for various reasons, people will still subscribe to their religious view of the world because it's, it's that it's part of how the world works and it's part of how the theology works. So of course you can't give that up without giving up, a whole bunch of other stuff and potentially imperiling the entire ideological infrastructure. So people obviously have, uh, you know, different reasons for wanting to hold on to that belief in, in the face of the evidence. And we do know that it is true that, that a belief in a flat earth persisted for a long time, particularly throughout the, the medieval era. And uh, there were even flat earth societies kicking around, I think in, uh, you know, the, the 19th century, didn't they call themselves the Zetetic Society or something? Is that the term that they used? I think they called oh, that, themselves... that, that part I'm, I'm not sure about. No. Yeah. The <laughs> only like the very modern uh, iterations of this that I, that I look into. Okay. No, um, I'm pretty sure when I, I went back and looked at the, the history of the modern uh, flat earth society, I'm pretty sure the 19th century, early 20th century groups called themselves the Zetetic Society or something. And they created maps based on what they thought a flat earth would, would look like. But all of this is actually simply a case of people subscribing to an ideological perspective. It's not evidence-based. It's not science-based. And they can't simply say, well, people believe this because that's all that the evidence ever showed because uh, our Greek guy demonstrates to us that the note, that's not what the evidence showed. Moreover, people still had to come up with a, an explanation for the disappearance of sails and boats over the horizon, as Aristotle noted. So there are plenty of different clues throughout history and throughout the uh, the history of scientific experimentation that shows that, no, the, the evidence was very much pointing in the direction that said, hey, <laughs> the earth is, is round and and there's just about any number of ways you can demonstrate this and and even observation with the naked eye will indicate this to you. So that's, they, they can't use that argument. Also, I, I'm pretty sure that cosmology came into play at some point as um, telescopes were uh, were invented and refined and it became more easy to map the uh, progression of the night sky 
it became more obvious to demonstrate that the relation of the earth, uh, the position of the earth in relation to the stars was also affected by the shape of our planet as well. So that you could, you could start to draw proof from that. So all of this tells us then that there is still, even in the 20th century, an urgent need for critical thinking. And, and modern educators have constantly, repeatedly stressed the need to teach critical thinking yes. as part of the school curriculum. But when we use the, critical, the term critical thinking, what exactly are we talking about? Can you give a definition of critical thinking and explain why it is so important? Yes. So critical thinking uh, doesn't have any particular simple definition. You're going to find uh, several definitions for this, and that's fine, but they all hit up on the same basic ideas. So one is where you analyze and argue the evidence leading to a conclusion. Uh, it's also about metacognition. So not just the argument, but also thinking about the ways that you go about thinking about this, identifying the various shortcomings you have, uh, being cognizant of the various biases and pitfalls that can lead you astray. And it's also not just about thinking, but also how you're going to communicate your questions, your rebuttals, your ideas. So it, it, it kind of uh, involves all of these different tenets together. I think um, harking back to the point I made about people preferring simple answers to complex questions, even when those simple answers are, are, are wrong. To me, this comes back to an ongoing problem. And it's one of the things that has led to the rise in conspiracy theories, I believe, that people fall into conspiracy theories or, or unscientific ways of thinking simply because they don't understand how certain aspects of the world actually function. So uh, people believe weird things about vaccines because they don't understand how vaccines work, or they start to have doubts about um, about the shape of the earth because they don't understand how geometry works or how cosmology works or, or how astronomy works or how the various other things that we would use to demonstrate around earth work. There seems to be a lack of understanding about how certain fundamental things in, in the world actually function. And this is what leads people to make bizarre assumptions and leap to wild conclusions about what's actually going on. I would, if, I would disagree with that, actually. I would think it's not so much a lack of understanding, it's a lack of trust. So th these people, they understand how geometry works. They understand conceptually, like how a, a vaccine would work. What they question is the, the positions of power that have released this information. Like, why should they trust this authority, right? What are they hiding? What do they have to gain, right? These, this overriding suspicion starts coming into play, leading them down this rabbit hole of uh, questions that are easily leading them to misinterpret information, finding uh, ideas that appease to this need to feel like they are not having the wool pulled over their eyes, uh, the need to find agency when there isn't agency, you know, somebody pulling the strings on something. Uh, 
So I would think it's uh, it's more of a, a, a trust issue, more of a uh, more of a psychology, more than it is a, a lack of understanding. Maybe it's um maybe it's a lack of understanding on metacognition. Maybe they're not self-aware of these processes that are leading them astray. But I, I wouldn't think it's so much a lack of understanding of uh, laws or logic itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, the reason and I, I take your point. I think you've the trust issue is the is the big one, and it feeds into a discussion earlier about skepticism of expertise uh, and authority and authority figures. Um, but the reason I mention lack of understanding about how things work is because I've I've seen this come up time and time again with people, particularly the the flat earthers demonstrating there so many of their arguments are based on a misunderstanding of physics, mm. for example. Yes. So flat earthers will say, how can a rocket move in space? There's no air to push off. Mm. Yeah. Right. That is a fundamental misunderstanding about how physics, the physics, you know, works. Yes. And not in even that past case, yeah. Newton's laws there, you know, we're not even at that level of, of comprehension. Right. They've got well, a, a fundamental misunderstanding about how, the process actually works, which but is what has led them to that conclusion. But if, if I may, that, that actually hasn't led to their conclusion. Remember what they're engaging at that point is confirmation bias. So they've already bought into this, uh, this flat earth idea or something, and then they have found right. a way to reverse engineer that argument. How can a rocket propel itself if there is no air? Right. Actually, that makes perfect sense. Yes. Thank you for explaining that. So they have, they have sought then an answer to the question that satisfies their pre-existing belief or satisfies the belief they've, they've recently got hold of. Correct. And that since, because that belief is sufficient, they haven't found the need to look any further. It's not so much a misunderstanding of the physics. They haven't even thought about the physics at all. They've simply found the answer they wanted. Right. Yeah. So uh, hypothetically, I, I know we're, we're talking about a hypothetical scenario. If that same person never bought into this whole flat earth idea and they entered a physics class about like, hey, this is how rockets work. They don't have any skin in the game. They don't have any ego investment, no self-identity invested into a contradictory answer on this. So they'll just say, oh, OK, yeah, that makes sense. Here's the math. Here's experiments showing this and it, it wouldn't be an issue. But then when you put in this belief that they've invested into, that they've socially tied themselves with the community, they feel obligated to defend not only this, this idea that they've incorporated in the identity, but also their social community, right? Then this is where you get to how easy it is to use really strange arguments like how can a rocket work if there's no air to push against it? And that all brings us back to, of course, the importance of critical thinking, developing critical thinking in individuals and then teaching it to people as a, say, as a, a school curriculum subject or a, yes. you know, some kind of remedial program or, or oh, yes. um, and in some sort of incorporating it into science communication on social media or, or however we choose to, to propagate it. Yes, I've argued uh, for quite some time uh, here in the States, uh, part of the reason, at least that was explained to me growing up, that we had to take English just about every year in, in throughout education from uh, kindergarten, well, maybe not quite kindergarten, but from first grade through 12th, we had to learn English. 
And part of the reason was said, well, we live in a democratic republic and it's very important for you to communicate ideas, read other people's ideas and engage in this public discourse. Well, that's, that's a very good answer, but what's the point if you don't match that up with critical thinking? What's the point of conveying ideas if you can't formulate a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> right so I, so my way of looking at it is uh, we need to be teaching critical thinking at least uh, as a standalone subject at least in middle school on up uh, i think it's just a just a disgrace that i didn't take a single critical thinking class where i learned the rules of logic learned these formal informal fallacies until college i was like this is a bit late in the game to start understanding this yeah, I, rem I remember when I was in high school, I um, I was asked to do a, an, an essay and I chose uh, to do an essay on reason and the question of whether or not animals can reason and, and if so, to what extent. And I looked at experiments about, you know, dogs and, and apes learning to operate levers to get food and, and, and this kind of thing. And I was always disappointed that this that this whole area of of study wasn't actually a particular course or a, or a unit at at high school because it seemed to me this was a really fascinating question of how thinking works in animals yes. in people and how best to do it, particularly in the context of problem solving, which is something we we do every day. 90% of the time unconsciously because a lot of the processes are either hardwired or we've learned them so well they're now internalized and we don't even think about them. We do them ah, automatically. Yes. We don't think about the mathematical calculations required to send a ball from our hand to to a basketball hoop or a piece of rubbish into, in, into a bin. And yet somehow, somehow in the back of our mind at the subconscious level a huge amount of calculation and mathematics and and physics is being worked out to decide the angle of trajectory the amount of force the the elevation any other factors that might affect it like a crosswind or, or whatever or, or <laughs> someone's moving the basket or whatever we do all of this automatically we've we've learned it and yet we don't we're not taught in, at school, we're not taught how to do this consciously with everyday things like discussions and, and arguments and, and as you say, other aspects of critical thinking. And that is such a shame. Yeah, and I want to build on this. Uh, sometimes this, uh, I, I fail to mention this, sometimes just in just the way discussions go. Also, uh, the philosophical background for all of this, right? Even science is an extension of, of philosophy, right? The epistemology, the ontology, why, what are the basic foundational knowledge that leads us to discover answers, right? Like, you know, when, when discuss, discussing somebody, like, are you having an argument that's deductive in nature, inductive in nature, abductive in nature, right? Like, many people don't understand these various differences. You know, uh, is this um, is this claim based in a post-positivist worldview? Is this a value claim based on social constructivism? Right. This, you, we could spend so much time on that. We don't teach these kids anything about any of these important foundational knowledge material that completely is relevant. It's very relevant to everything. Yeah, one thing. 
I I like to do when I'm I'm talking with people, particularly say anti vaxxers or someone presenting a an unscientific or anti scientific point of view. I try to get to the bottom of how they interpret information and how they make sense of the world. So, so basically, without actually asking the question explicitly, what I, I ask a number of questions, which which taken together add up to, what is your epistemological model? Yes. How how do you know what you know? How do you work out that you know what you know? What are, you, are your tools for making sense of the world? Because that will tell me how you are approaching and processing information. And that will make it much easier for me to understand how you're arriving at your conclusions, which in turn will allow me to identify the places where logic or, or rational thinking is, is breaking down, or maybe there may be gaps in the knowledge are preventing you from coming to the right conclusions. I think understanding how people interpret the world, what their what their epistemological model is, is critical to making a breakthrough with with these kinds of discussions. Yes, this also dovetails very neatly with uh, Walter Fisher's narrative theory. So this is largely a, a communication theory, but this dovetails very neatly. So uh, when people are uh, hearing a story unfold, be it like a story, like factual nature, like we're telling the story of like climate change, right? Or we're telling like a personal story uh, or even maybe uh, a story with a moral in it. People are listening to the story on two different levels. One is kind of like the structure of the story. Do the characters make sense? Does the plot make logical sense, right? Things of this nature. And, and another level has to do with their worldview like exactly their epistemological model what are their values does the, is this story congruent with the way they see the story is it congruent with their goals is it congruent with the sense of their however they view the highest uh value that exists right what is the best possible way you can live your life and that largely determines how people will resonate with your message it, yeah this is uh of course, Walter Fisher didn't stumble upon anything new. He just kind of gave it a, a, a framework that we could work with. But what's interesting is that uh, he went so far as to uh, suggest, uh, maybe not seriously, but suggest that we shouldn't call us homo sapiens, we should call us homo narens, because we just are invested in the narrative. This ha we're, we're storytelling people, we are social critters. <laughs> So getting back to the issue of authority and the problem with trust in authority figures and, and trust in experts, I want to touch on the issue of peer review. Can you explain mm. to the audience what peer review is and what role it plays in science and why that is so important? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, peer review is uh, one of the steps in the uh, scientific method and the scientific method is, is cyclical, right? You start with observations, you develop questions and hypotheses, you test them with experiments, you collect your data, you analyze this data, and then you submit your findings for others to observe, replicate, critique, right? Uh, a lot of people, uh, tend to misunderstand this as peer review process being only the step when 
a small group of your of uh, experts will review your paper before publishing. And that that's simply not the case. Yes, that's part of it. But peer review is an ongoing thing. It, it just never ends. <laughs> you know, you can publish something today and then 50 years from now, someone can read it and be like, wait a minute, and notice a flaw that you had and, and then replicate. That is still <laughs> peer review. And the reason this is important is because of the many reasons we talked about, right? It doesn't matter how skilled we are, how much we devote ourselves to scientific thought, critical thinking, we are still flawed human beings, still subject to our own biases, and perhaps <laughs> developing such a strong background in a particular field of knowledge can sometimes blind ourselves to like, oh, I made a mistake and I didn't see it because I was so confident. So peer review is important precisely because of these, these psychological biases or these things you didn't consider can get in the way. So talking specifically about, about that term, uh, peer review, the term peer implies someone who's on, on your same level and, and in your same in-group. Yes. Does this mean then that peer review is only conducted by colleagues of, of the person who share the same discipline, the same level of education, they specialize in the same field? Is, is that a, the general assumption of peer review? Mostly. Are you reviewed by people outside your field, legitimately? It depends. It depends. Uh, so much more and more research is becoming interdisciplinary. So there might be aspects of your research that uh, can be easily critiqued and flaws noticed by somebody who's in a different field. And this, this happens sometimes. Uh, there was a recent article that uh, came out, uh, very relevant, talk about COVID, where for decades, for decades, there was a, a misunderstanding of how uh, viruses can can spread. So it was believed that it was only could only be spread in larger mucoidal droplets, and then these large, these very smaller, smaller particles they 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 just can't reside. It just doesn't happen. Well, it, it took actually uh, well somebody who studied it. They were more in the realm of physics <laughs> than they were in biology. And it took a lot of work for them to get the medical community to look at their, their data and be like, look, you, you guys have had a misunderstanding from like old data <laughs> before, and this is how this virus is spreading. These smaller particles matter. And yeah, it, it can totally happen. But still, that was still an expert, right? That was still an expert on particles. This wasn't somebody like who was like, I don't know, a, a rocket scientist coming in and be like, your PCR is wrong. Like, no, that, that's, that's not happening. So what's the relationship between peer review and scientific consensus? Ah, yes. So scientific consensus is a result of uh, robust evidence that the community has reviewed over and over again. So... Uh, a lot of people misunderstand consensus for what, whatever reason. Maybe the only uh, analogy they have is a bunch of their friends getting together talking about politics, you know, some sort of value or policy claim, and they just agree on something arbitrarily, right? I, I don't know. But scientific consensus is, is very different. It's not like, you know, there's a scientific congress that gets together and asks everybody's opinion on something. That, no, that's not what happened. It's just this uh, some sort of 
organic agreement that arises during the technical discourse from evidence. So you have study and study and study and study and study that is reporting the results. You take those results, you retest it, test it differently, other questions happen. And eventually this community just agrees on this is the best explanation for whatever they're looking at, be it climate change, uh, the safety and efficacy of vaccines, the earth is round, <laughs> or what, whatever other sort of fact claim you want to you want to uh, discuss. Oh, and I, I, I said that numerous times, but I don't think you've hashed that out. Uh, there are three different types of claims that we can be talking about. Uh, fact claims, value claims, or policy claims, and we're largely talking about fact claims here. We're not really talking about the way that we argue value claims or, or policy claims. Right? We're, we're, we are talking about fact claims here. So this is a very different realm of uh, argument, epistemology, etc. So is it fair to say that scientific consensus is a consensus of evidence rather than a consensus of mere opinion? It's not just a bunch of scientists saying, we agree our general opinion is on this is, is such and such. It's a, a bunch of scientists saying, when repeatedly tested against this particular hypothesis, the evidence inevitably, irrevocably, always leads us back to this same conclusion. Therefore, our consensus is based on the results of the evidence always pointing in, in this direction. Is that a, a fair Correct. way to it's put it? It's an agreement that is a result of evidence, right? It's, yeah, so you come to some conclusion that you can uh, take for granted until better evidence that might or might not come along that, that disrupts this. I want to touch on a study that passed peer review and was subsequently found to be deeply flawed. And that was Andrew Wakefield's mm. 1990s study on mm. the MMR vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, given that peer review is considered the, the gold standard for scientific testing and for the, um, for the exploration of, of theories and determining whether or not they're, they're robust, and given that his... Uh, his study not only passed peer review, but was published in what is arguably the most prestigious yes. academic journal in the world, the, the Lancet. Yes, um, very, very good journal. Yeah. What people will say then is, well, how could this happen if the peer review system is so reliable? What went wrong there with the peer review system? And... Uh, what can be done to prevent that happening again? Mm, yeah, so I, I want to like assure people like it's not just willy nilly. It can take years sometimes to get your study published, <laughs> depending. But there, there's a whole lot of factors that could uh, that could uh, be different. With uh, Wakefield's case, I believe it was because his was assumed to be a preliminary study because the sample size was just so small and preliminary studies they're just understood by the publisher and the community this is just preliminary data that may lead to hypotheses that we should test for later so it's and an exploratory stage rather than a, 
a big final conclusion kind of thing. Right. And yeah. And uh, I, I want to, um, I, I feel like I want to differentiate, I split in hairs here. Uh, exploratory studies are not always small studies. You can have large exploratory studies that aren't just test and hypothesis. Like let's discover what is the microbial community in this lake, right? You're not, you're, you're doing an exploratory study. You're not testing hypothesis or anything. So by preliminary study, I, I mean something small in sample size. You're just looking to see like, hey, is this worthy of study? And at that point, like, hey, like, hey, there's this possible connection between this MMR vaccine and autism. It would have been irresponsible from the Lancet's point of view to not publish it, right? Because like, hey, that's a that's a safety concern if he's if this is accurate. Well, as as we find out later, not only was he wrong, he even fudged the numbers. <laughs> like, it's just there there is unethical <laughs> practices done through this. It was it was this was a mess, and it took lo rather long, in my opinion. Like, what was it like a decade or some something like that before the Lancet finally removed it redacted the, the article from their journal well too late at that point right but i guess what i'm what i'm saying here is that uh a large part that sleep through the cracks was because it was on the auspice of a preliminary study as, as i understand it anyway so those are not as rigorously scrutinized that that makes sense i i understand also that the the seniority of the staff involved like the the main doctor that Wakefield was was working with, uh, whose name escapes me for the moment, is or is or was very highly regarded and was you know considered something of a uh, an expert in his field, and it was not immediately clear to the reviewers how much work of the work was actually Wakefield's and how much was this other guy's, and the Wakefield was largely using this guy's name as a bit of a cover to slide his um some of his his more dodgy conclusions into into the study mm -hmm. so that there, there was clearly elements of of trust that were a little bit more generous than they should have been largely yes, I think, no. on on the basis of you know seniority of the doctors involved in and their the excellence of their the past work and the fact that when it came out nearly all of the co-authors had removed their names from it and said, no, 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 this is, this yes. is not actually <laughs> what we personally concluded. This is actually a distortion of, of the evidence yes. that I think was um, a, a pretty clear indication that one of the reasons this had slipped past peer review, because Wakefield had smoothed it over just enough to make it credible, oh. but that oh, yeah. his co-authors were not aware of what he was actually doing with the numbers. This, this sometimes happens. Yeah. But this is also because scientists are humans too, is also just that is more need for peer review. <laughs> the fact that peer review is flawed is the reason for peer review. Ironic. Daniel, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. I, I just want to ask if people want to follow your work online, where can they find you? Yeah, so I am mostly on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook page is known as Sergeant Scholar. So that's a play on, on words from like Sergeant Slaughter, if anyone followed wrestling from <laughs> decades ago, right? So yeah, so uh, Sergeant Scholar, SGT Scholar. Uh, you'll be able to find me easily on Facebook. I have a, um, a blog on WordPress 
and I have a, a less active presence on Instagram and Twitter as well. Daniel, thank you so much again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dave. 